0: Welcome to the SYA podcast, giving you teachings from the young adult ministry of Shepherd Church, where it's our mission to lift up Christ that the world might believe. We meet every Thursday at Shepherd Church in Porter Ranch. For more info, go to wearesya.com. The to, um, intro tonight just, you know, saying what I think is obvious that everything going on with Russia and Ukraine is frightening um, in our world. Um, not just for us, but it's heartbreaking knowing what's going on um, in so many of, you know, normal people's lives over in Ukraine, and that, for, for most of us probably, on some level, it wakes us up to... The fact that there's things going on all over the world, and yes, right here, but whatever your political persuasion or your, however you interpret history, maybe you don't read much history, so you don't got much interpretation, that's fine too, whatever your politics are, politics are an extension of human nature. Often when we think about systems within the world and governments, we tend to think of them as other, you know, but they are other people right? And those people are just like you in that they are sinful. And you can buy into uh, Jacques Rousseau's kind of way of thinking, his claim that human beings are inerrantly good, right? And you may have never heard his name, but he's probably shaped uh, this modern philosophy that people are naturally good more than anybody else, um, but this idea that people are just basically good until the system of the world, until culture gets a hold of us and, and corrupts us. But you don't have to be a, an historian. Just tens of thousands of years show the contrary of that. You don't need theological or historical training to know that human beings are not naturally good. We are made in God's image Absolutely, but we have been stained with sin, by sin. We are broken containers of divine dirt. We're like cocktails uh, of twisted cravings, tortured egos, and this frustrating potential of transformation. Good is not the first word that comes to my mind when I think about the canvas of humanity, of human beings, of war and murder and slavery and abuse. It's not the first word When you consider your own, or at least it shouldn't be, good should not be the very first word that comes to your mind when you think about the canvas of your life and your history or mine. But if you breathe in and consider that you and I hold within us the divine breath, the breath of God that moves us toward light and toward hope. And hope makes space for resurrection. And resurrection didn't just happen; it happens, and resurrection changes everything. Have you seen the animated movie *The Croods* Part One? Right? You've seen *The Croods*. Uh, the caveman Grug—I think that's how you say his name—he's always trying to protect his family by hiding inside of caves while this new reality is bursting forth literally for all around them. So, I want you to watch this uh, little clip. Where uh, Grug is going to make an announcement to his family. So check this out. Grug, listen to me. We've got to get back to that cave. No more dark, no more hiding, no more caves. What's the point of all this? To follow the light. I can't change, I don't have ideas, but I have my strength. And right now, that's all you need. No, we don't know what's over there. Maybe nothing. It's too risky. It's a chance. When I watched that movie, I was in the theater with my boys, and when he said that line about what's the point of all of this, to follow the light, I'm like, oh, that'll preach. That will preach. Now, uh, sorry to ruin it for you, but he then takes each of his family members and like chucks them across into the fog because they can't see what's on the other side. They don't know for sure. That's why it's a risk. But it's toward new life as their world, what they've been used to is literally crumbling. And it's, it's like pregnancy or like growing pains when you're a, a kid or like any new start like a new relationship or a new job. that you, you often mourn the old, that's healthy, and you're nervous about the new because of the un- uncertainty. But all new life emerges from pain, from sacrifice, from uncertainty, and from death. In the late 90s, I listened to a man named John share his, his story, his testimony. And he served at an after-school program in the inner city of Cincinnati, Ohio. That's where he had grown up. And he was, a, uh, when he, he was tall and big as an adult, but as a kid he was also tall and big and he was recruited into gang life at a young age. But in his 20s, he experienced encountered Jesus Christ and he became a Christian and he left the gang life behind. So John, who was black, that's going to matter in this story, He had been working at this after school mission for a couple of years when he met Willie. Uh, Willie, who had tattoos all over his arms, and those tattoos revealed his allegiance to a white supremacy gang. But God is a, you know, he likes irony, and these two become friends. John befriends Willie, he leads him to Christ, baptizes him, and the only way Willie could get out of the gang he was in was to get beat out. And he was sharing that with John. John understood this. This was a part of uh, many of the culture of gangs. And Willie was afraid and, and, and John could see that. So John said, I'll go with you when you have to tell, you know, this gang and, and they're gonna beat you up so you can get out. And Willie laughed and said, um, uh, John, you're black, right? <laughs> he, he can't go with me. But John insisted He said, look, you're just going to tell him. you're going to tell him that you're getting out because you're a Christian, and and, and I'll be there with you. And so they go, and Willie explains his conversion to the gang leader. The leader is not looking at Willie, he's only looking at John while Willie talks. Finally, the gang leader says, okay, Willie, you can go, We we won't lay a hand on you. But then he looks back to John, and he says, but you have to let us beat you up and you can't fight back. That's the, the deal the gang leader makes. And John agreed. And of course, Willie protested, but John had agreed, so that's what they did. They held Willie back, they beat John up, he, he clearly survived, I was hearing his testimony. He was put in the hospital for several days. But, but my point of the story, besides it being just a powerful story, Willie was given new life from John's Painful sacrifice. And it was a death of sorts for John because he had to, he chose to relinquish control to a group of men that were set on evil and hatred. And that broke my heart listening to it as I was thinking about the reality of this. But it was also like a living picture of the gospel because the gospel at its core announces no more dark. No more hiding, no more caves. What's the point of all of this? It's to follow the light, the light of Jesus. Jesus died on the cross. This was last week. He died on the cross to save us from our sin, to rescue us. From giving our souls to a system that says eye for eye, evil for evil, might makes right. The cross ultimately disarmed the powers of devaluing human beings. So sin is a very real and present danger all around us. But the threat is always greater within us. But in Christ, sin doesn't have the last word. He, Jesus, very clearly says that the only true and wise way forward, now you still have a choice, right? But the only true and wise way forward is through his crossway. Like his way of living, his way of relinquishing control, of absorbing whatever life has to offer in the name of love, believing that it will win in the end. And on the other side of Jesus' cross way is Jesus' promise, resurrection. Now, I'm going to freely admit to you that most things in life or most things regarding faith— I believe, are existential, right? They're born of personal experience. Uh, They are tethered deeply to kind of how you're made up emotionally, but also your upbringing, your culture, all of that put together. That kind of makes up your faith. So if you ask me, because I do believe that's kind of like a, a sociological truth, psychological truth. So if you ask me, Dusty, why do you believe in and follow Jesus? I'll try to be fully honest and say, therefore, because of my experience of Jesus, 1993, half drunk in my bedroom, experiencing Jesus rescuing me from vile and vicious things, and then calling out on his name, and he came, he rescued. Now, you could argue, maybe that was a coincidence, Maybe you have some kind of deep psychological bias going on that you hadn't admitted to yourself. Cool. I, uh, like, I'm open to that. But I would also argue that whether that's true or not, I would argue that I actually believe that experience because for 30 years I've lived as if it were true. Now, that doesn't make it true, right, my experience or the resurrection of Jesus. And it doesn't prove that it's true. So if you push me for an intellectual reason... For my Christian faith, I have only one firm footing. And that is the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus from Galilee. Now, the New Testament, right, which is, that tells about the life of Jesus in the early church. The New Testament is a major hinge to that footing of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. But I don't believe that something happened because something was written down. Right, I don't, think that, I, I don't think that there was a, a conspiracy of sorts and a cult that was started and written down. And because it was written down, some powerful thing happened. I believe that something happened. And because of that, something was written down. And eyewitnesses claim that because Jesus was God's son, because he was divine, that his death saved us from sin. It offers us a new way to be human. So I believe that the cross of Jesus was the crescendo of God's love and his truth and his power on the earth, but it was his resurrection that set it loose to set us free and to wreak wonderful havoc upon evil and injustice now and in the next life. Now, so some people are going to say it doesn't matter whether Jesus literally physically rose from the dead or whether it's just like a like a spiritual, metaphorical, Santa Claus in your heart, spirit of Christmas kind of a thing. But Paul, the first century Pharisee who had murdered Christians under the name of Saul and later encountered the risen Jesus, he ended up writing this in a letter to some Greek Christians in the first century. It's found in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. It says this. It says, Christ died for our sins he was buried and raised from the dead on the third day just as the scriptures the old testament the hebrew scriptures had said he was seen by peter and then by the 12 like the main you know the, the main disciples of jesus and after that he was seen by more than 500 of his followers at the same time most of whom are still alive though some have died then he was seen by james that was jesus's brother Put that in your back pocket for later. And last of all, Paul writes, As though I had been born at the wrong time, I also saw him. If Christ has not been raised, then your faith is useless and you're still guilty of your sins. But Christ has been truly raised from the dead. The first one and proof that those who sleep in death will also be raised. So this is just a snapshot, but the first eyewitnesses of Jesus... They didn't see his resurrection as metaphorical, as spiritual in that sense. They told about touching Jesus' wounds, of eating fish with Jesus, right? Like, as far as I know, ghost hallucinations don't consume actual food, right? So what we're left with is an empty tomb and radical changes that cannot be explained away easily. Now, you can say... And believe that the disciples like stole the body. They 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 came in and took the body out of the tomb, and they conspired a resurrection cult. But if if you claim that, then you also have to believe that this motley crew of outcast uh, fishermen and zealots and women, which is important in the you know in the first century of being leaders of this movement. That these this motley crew of Jewish people overpowered a bunch of Roman soldiers. They conspired a cult that ultimately brought about all of their deaths and really gruesome deaths. That they were responsible for the very first time in human history equal rights, the world's greatest ethics. But ultimately, they were flagrant flagrant liars and frauds. Right? You th- to, to believe one, you've got to believe also the other. You have to believe that these conspiracies, they, you know, package simple things together. Well, and you know this if you're a student of history, like when people conspire, part of the the wisdom of conspiracies are kind of simplest common denominators. You want to make the details simple to remember, to agree upon all of this. But as you read through the Gospels, you've got these these question marks, these things that are just weird, like Jesus on the cross crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Things like women being the heroes of the resurrection story in the first century when they were considered, like, not allowed to testify in court because they weren't educated. Like, like you don't make, if you're making things up, you make things up that are kind of easy to accept as a first century person. Well, they don't do that. And that's just a couple of examples. Or if you want to say that Rome and the Jewish leaders, right, Jesus died on the cross and then they put him in a tomb, but the leaders were worried that the disciples were going to come and steal the body, so they go to the, the, the tomb of Jesus, they take his body out, and they move it to another tomb. If you believe that, if you say that's, how, well, that's where the resurrection story came from, well, then you also have to believe that Rome... And the Jewish leadership was, they were afraid of this motley crew of ragtag Jewish disciples. And th- my favorite one is, if, if you know the story, the book of Acts, the resurrection has happened, supposedly, right? And they go around, the first Christians, and begin to preach, right? Forty days after Jesus rose from the dead, they begin to preach boldly, and thousands of people come to Christ, so what do you do if you're the Jewish or Roman people? Because a, that's a big deal. A lot of people converting from Judaism to this radical new cult, right? If you move the body, what do you do? It's 40 days. You go and get the actual body. You unwrap it, right? They kind of mummified it. They put the wrapping. You unwrap it to this broken, crucified, tortured man. His body is beginning to rot. You walk it through the streets of Jerusalem and say, he hasn't risen. He, this is him. He's dead. And and in one fell swoop, you destroy the infant of Christianity before it even really begins. And if you say that Jesus fainted on the cross, they thought he was dead, they put him in the tomb, they mummified him, three days later he woke up. You know, this one's so crazy that no one thought of it until like 1700 years later. Right, that he's three days wrapped, no food, no water. He wiggles out of his mummy clothes. He moves the stone. He, Jesus jiu-jitsu's the Roman guards. He walks miles on pierced feet and he convinces his followers that he's the resurrected Lord of life. It's just stupid. It's, a, it's the stupidest one. Now, none of that proves that Jesus rose from the dead. And my experience of Jesus is biased. But, the alternatives, I think, to really believe in them, they take more faith than at least being open to the fact that Jesus rose from the dead. Now, you could just be like, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know that I like the idea of resurrection. That seems crazy. But also, something clearly happened. I'm not sure how to explain it away. What we're left with is the undisputed empty tomb and 1 Corinthians 15, we read it. This is one of the earliest New Testament documents, by the way. It says that over 500 people saw Jesus alive at the same time. This rule, we already know in modern science about hallucinations, that rules it out. That many people don't have this exact same hallucination, just doesn't happen. We're left with the Christian church. How did this ragtag group of people fundamentally change the world's oldest religion, And the most ingrained ancient ethics and social assumptions about race and gender and wealth and individual dignity and rights? Like none of that. How did they do that in such a short time? Galatians chapter 3 verse 27 says, Paul writes, All who have been united with Christ in baptism have put on Christ like putting on new clothes. And then it says, Whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, slave or free, male or female, all are one in Christ. That's the first literature in human history claiming that all humans are equal. And he connects that in the next verse to the resurrection because he talks about baptism, being buried and raised. We're left with radical life change then and now. We've got Jesus' little brother James James, along with the rest of Jesus' family, they early on thought Jesus was mad. Not like mad, like crazy, like cuckoo, right? And, but, ev- but what you find out, eventually in the book of Acts, in those early days of the Christian church, guess who the leader is? James, little brother of Jesus. Like, what would it take to convince you that your sibling was God in flesh? <laughs> You'd think they're crazy until you didn't. What would it take? Clearly, this happened for James. Before the resurrection, the first disciples were hiding after Jesus died. They were fearing the same death. But after 40 days later, they boldly proclaim that not only did Jesus raise from the dead, but that salvation is found under no other name in all of the world. They were imprisoned tortured and all but one of the ogs of the original 12 all but one of them died a torturous death as a martyr john's the only one that made it into old age but that was because they sent him off to a a prison island where he wrote revelation and then you've got saul who became paul the pharisee who had arrested and murdered the first christians but eventually he claimed that he encountered the resurrected jesus he wins the trust of the first disciples. He travels the world. He writes two thirds of the New Testament. He was beaten, mocked, imprisoned, shipwrecked, and eventually beheaded by the Roman Emperor Nero because of his influence in the world. James, the disciples, Saul, me, you. Billions over the last 2,000 years. Think about most hospitals in the world, not just in America, most orphanages. So much of the good work in the world is connected to the name of Jesus somehow, some way. If this was a conspired cult deception, what brought about that change? Ultimately, I believe all of this because of my experience, ultimately. But in retrospect, all of this makes good sense, too. I'm biased, but it doesn't mean it makes not good sense. The New Testament is not preoccupied only with the resurrection of Jesus happened. I'd say it's more focused on this fact that resurrection happens for you and for me and for all who would trust in Jesus. Romans chapter 6 says that when we were joined with Christ in baptism, we joined him in his death. For we died and were buried with Christ by baptism. And just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glorious power of the Father, now we may also live new lives. Romans chapter 8 verse 11 says the Spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead now also lives in you. If, If you trust in Christ, the same power, the same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead lives in you. 2 Corinthians 5.17, this means that anyone who is in Christ has become a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Colossians 3 says, since you have been raised to new life with Christ, put to death the sinful things that are lurking within you. Take off the sinful life and put on this new life, this new self, which is renewed in the knowledge of your creator becoming like him. New life comes through Jesus but the process is like a death. Like when you listen to a good testimony it can give the appearance of of like life change in a moment, right? This person accepts Christ, and like Paul Saul on the road to Damascus, he experiences Jesus. But as you read the story of Paul, and there's so much that's not written about, it was not an overnight thing. There was a lot of life change that began to happen. It's a slow burn, or what Jesus simply calls a death. John chapter 12, verse 24, Jesus says, I tell you the truth, Unless a kernel of wheat is planted in the soil and dies, it remains alone, but its death will produce many new kernels, a plentiful harvest of new lives. This inescapable truth of life from death, it lay just inside the empty tomb of Jesus. And it's a truth that's not just for 2,000 years ago. It's a truth for right now. If you have ears to hear and eyes to see. Here's Jesus' most repeated words in the four gospels that tell of his life and teachings. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Here's, this is repeated the most. His, famous, his most famous saying. I'm going to read the one from Luke chapter 9, 23. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross daily, and follow me. For whoever tries to keep, or the word means preserve, or cling to their life will lose it. But whoever releases their life to me will save it. That word release, it literally means to ruin. Whoever ruins their life unto me will actually find it. So the question is, or a question is, what will you lose if you follow Jesus? If you live, as if he actually rose from the dead. You're gonna lose your way of self first, of eye for an eye and giving yourself over to the devaluing of other human beings. But listen, that's a good loss. But the new life in Jesus can feel like a death, like a slow, painful death, like loving your enemies, giving, giving to others, over just taking or receiving. Being slow to speak and quick to listen. Oh my gosh, that's like dying. Self-awareness over self-righteousness. Purity over patience. But as we die to the old and as we learn to live in his new, we experience Jesus' joy and hope and peace and love and truth. In Philippians chapter 3, verses 4 through 6, Paul says, lays out the ways he's been committed to his religion, to his politics, to his belief system. But then in verse 7, he says, I once counted these things as advantages, but now in light of what Jesus has done, I see their damage. Yes, I count all things as worthless in comparison with the supremacy of knowing Jesus as Lord. Anything I may have gained without Jesus, I cast it aside I count it as excrement. I'd rather have Jesus and be found in him. I no longer rely on my own righteousness through obeying the law. Rather, I'm righteous through my trust in Jesus. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. I want to suffer with Jesus, sharing in his death, so that one day or another I will experience the resurrection from the dead. Paul was taking, as he wrote this, he was taking spiritual inventory of his beliefs, of his privilege, of his heritage, of his talent. And he, and he wasn't filtering every other system of the world up against a new system. I think that's the wrong way to think of what it means to follow Jesus. He was putting it all up against, he says it, knowing Jesus, the experience of the resurrected Jesus, experiencing the power of his resurrection. So how about you? How do you count all those things? As you take spiritual inventory, what do you still clearly count as better than Jesus and his way? And by the way, you don't discover that inventory by pointing to your belief system, your theological worldview. You discover it through how you actually live. So it's not, you don't really look this way, you look back. This will tell the truth of your spiritual inventory. You could claim Jesus' way of honesty and purity and subversive strength and actually accepting all people, but how you live will tell, tell the truth. And this is essential that as you take inventory, do not ignore even the small changes in your life as you followed Jesus. Because a watered seed eventually grows. Resurrection happens cumulatively, choice by choice. 1994, about a year after I'd become a Christian, I had decided to work on my cussing. Not like work on starting to cuss, <laughs> but try not to. This was the journey, specifically saying God's name in vain and Jesus' name in vain. And it seemed so hard at the time. I was really frustrated at the depth of this habit, right? But I didn't give up. Like, I I dug deeper than just the technical habit, eventually of not saying those words. But in the journey, I began to consider my motives for why and when. I would use certain words. And that opened up a whole new world. And it was very painful. It was like, I don't know, like a death. Why do I feel the need to use these words or tell these jokes? And decades later, the way I would tell it to you is that the resurrected reality is not simply that I don't say cuss words, but that I am far more measured in the words of my heart than I used to be. and That's a good thing. That's, that's death and that's life. If you'd have asked me, I've told the story of 1996, 21 in a country club working with this older woman who made a proposition to me and I didn't follow her back to the room. I walked out, I got in my truck and drove home. If you would have asked me before that night if I believed that new life was possible, I'd have said, of course. But if you would have posed that little scenario to me, I would have told you that I sure hope I would choose the right way. But deep down, I would not know. But that night driving home, I knew because there's death and there's new life. Sometime around 2001, years later, I'm married, Amy and I literally ran into a girl from my past, and it did something. To me on the inside. We were all very polite and we went and got the car and I was just shooken, shook, shooken, shaken, shaking, I don't know, whatever that word's supposed to be, smart people say it right. I was in the car and I was a little messed up. And my wife began to speak life over me. That I Dustin, you're not that kid anymore. And not only are you forgiven, but you're set free. And she even blessed that girl. Not like, you know, in front of her, that would have been weird. But like, bless that girl in Jesus' name. And she told me, no shame. She said, Dusty, you're not special because you did some stupid sinful things back in the day. You're special because, I want to make jokes there, but I won't. You're special because you were courageous enough to say yes to Jesus' invitation to new life. If you've read all four accounts of Jesus' resurrection, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, There are several similarities besides the fact that he got up, (laughs) that he was not dead anymore. There was shock and surprise and fear and worship and doubt and wonder. Mark chapter 16 verse 8, it says that the women were trembling and bewildered. It's why we haven't been able to commercialize Easter as much as we have Christmas. Like resurrection can't be used and manipulated and controlled or improved upon. How do you do better than Jesus resurrecting from the dead? Eugene Peterson wrote this. He said, resurrection is not available for us to use. It is exclusively God's operation. It's God's power. It's God's tool what's required of us, what makes us special is the courage to obey. It's the courage to, if you say, I believe that Jesus rose from the dead, that it means that my life will now take, metaphorically, the shape of a cross. And that will hurt, and that will be like a death to ego and self. But if his promise is true, there's new life that emerges forth as our old life slowly crumbles all around us. There'll there'll be fog, but at some point, the hope is that we get to a place where we say, okay, no no more hiding, no more caves. The point of the whole thing is to follow the light. So as I asked at the beginning... And uh, the worship team, you guys can head this way. I said at the beginning, or I asked, you know, what's what's the most important thing regarding faith? Why do I believe? Why do I continue to follow Jesus? uh, Continue to be a Christian. I didn't want to say the name Jesus because my answer has his name. Jesus, always and forever. That's why the signature of Jesus is his cross, saving us from sin and from the giving ourselves over to. Evil for evil, the devaluing of others. And the promise of Jesus isn't just that he would rise from the dead, but that you will too. In the next life, absolutely. Now that's a whole other sermon, right? And that's the whole part of the hope we cling to. But, but not just then. I would even say that's secondary because if we rise in this life, if new life is possible here and now, if I can love my enemies... If I can learn to live in peace in the midst of chaos, if I can have new life here and now, then I'm only going to believe all the more in life to come, in the next life. Resurrection didn't just happen. It happens. So what I would like to do before we go into another time of worship so that we can respond to God's word in our heart. I'm going to ask you to stand, and I would like to bless you. It won't be as as wonderful and beautiful as Amy blessing me in that car that day, but uh, I'll do my best. But I wrote it down. May you live as if the whole thing is true. May you know deep in your spirit that you are loved, that you are loved by God because of Jesus now, And forever. May you believe that a seed buried and watered in grace will certainly burst forth in new life. And may you discover the courage to relinquish all that needs to die, allowing old things to pass away and new life to rise up. And as you survey your history and your current soul, may you have peace and may you know that resurrection didn't just happen, it happens. Pray with me. Lord Jesus, I give you honor and praise and gratitude from my heart for your death on the cross, for what it did and what it does to this day in us and through us. And Jesus, we gather um, really This is why Christian people gather. We gather to celebrate the fact that you have risen from the dead. That this faith that we stand on is not sinking sand. It is solid and secure. And Lord, I've already admitted there's so much in life and in this faith that I am not, I I just, I'm not certain of. I mean, I've got some strong opinions about how to interpret the scriptures and how to think about you and the world that you've made, but I mean, I don't know. I'm quite certain I'm wrong about a lot of it, but Jesus, your life, your death, your resurrection is the surest thing I've found in this life. And I know that's my... Much of that is my subjective experience. And so for whatever that is worth to my friends here tonight through this sermon, I pray that you would use it. But I, but I pray, Lord, for, for the openness of their heart, Lord, to experience your presence, Jesus, your, the power of your resurrection. And so for those that are believers and have been for a long time, and just need to be inspired once again that that this Christian life is difficult and it's like a death. It's like being buried in the in the earth again and again. But may they be inspired and reminded that new life is not only possible, it is certain in you. And God, for those who would not consider themselves a Christian, a follower of Jesus, I pray that this that we've talked about tonight would be a seed in their heart lord and that your spirit would would water it and that you would move in their life pulling them closer and closer to jesus god as we worship as we respond as believers to the truth of your death washing away our sins and of your resurrection, giving us new life here and now. May we be united in our hearts and in our minds as we worship, as we repent, as we celebrate, as we sing. I pray all of this, Jesus. In your name, amen. Thanks for listening to the SYA podcast. Be sure to connect with us on Instagram at we Are SYA.